you're going to have to pray for me tonight that I, that I not be misunderstood because the things that I'm going to talk about are so unnatural and are so rare in our thought process and they're not spoken often. In fact, we don't, it's never spoken, really, as we talk about, um, as we preach and teach from the Word of God. And so I'll, I'll really run the risk of being misunderstood. You'll need to uh, help me to help me in that. There's always a barrier when somebody preaches. There is an ignorance in the, in the lip of the preacher, and there's an ignorance in the hear, ear of the hearer. And these are tremendous barriers to overcome. And tonight is a special barrier because I'm going to deal with a subject that is completely alien to probably uh, your thought and mine. I want to discuss tonight the whole subject of, of servanthood. The magnificence of insignificance might be a good title. I want us to see what servanthood is and what it is not and how it relates to true ambition, one who wants to get on in life and be ambitious and be successful. And there are a lot of that, there's a lot of that uh, talk today. As a matter of fact, the best sellers in the bookstores have to do with, uh, with ambition and drive and success motivation. I want us to talk about servanthood as it relates to humility. When is it true humility that I'm trying to manifest and when is it false humility? For part of the problem is that we live in a time when having authority carries an image with it. You have to have this image to have authority. I was watching the ball game and they came on with this commercial this afternoon. It talked about now you've arrived to be the number, to be the top man in your company and you need a car to go along with that. I mean, and they drove out this big Cadillac, you know. And because you've arrived at the top in your field, you need something that goes along with that. You need a Cadillac. That's the, what I'm talking about. When you arrive and you gain some authority, you need some, some uh, trappings to go with that. You need an image to project. Um, I believe it was Blaise Pascal who said, if the judges didn't wear robes, how could we imagine that they could dispense justice truly? I mean, the way you tell a judge, you know, is a robe. He's got this image. And the governor, you know, governors don't drive pintos. Uh, they're in uh, limousines. <laughs> That's the way you tell one. And kings wear these rings on their fingers. And can you imagine the Pope coming out on the balcony in a T-shirt and cutoffs? Can you picture that? I mean, they got this cone on top of their, their head and this, this, this dress they wear. And the, the president has these trappings that he wears and surrounds himself with. And can you hear the president coming with the, with the sounds of hail to the chief as he walks along? Or we live in a time when um, image carries, authority carries an image with it. Except in the church. Except in the church. Now, your finger is already turned to Acts 18 and is holding the place there. But I want to check us out here on Matthew 20. Would you turn to that passage? Matthew 20, verse 20. Now, 
sometime when you're wanting to know um, where the passage is on servanthood in Matthew, just remember vision, 2020. Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her... Hold it just a minute. I flipped all the way back to Acts. With her sons bowing down and making a request of him. Now, I don't know whether you get this picture or not, but this is absolutely hilarious. Here is this mother with two grown sons, and she's coming to Jesus to make a request of them. That would embarrass me to death, you know, if my mother uh, got in on the deal like this. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom... These two sons, and there they are, they're standing there saying, go get a mother, uh, tell it like it is. These two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able I mean, in one voice, mother and two sons, we are able. Wouldn't that have embarrassed you if your mother was out bucking for your promotion in the company, trying to get you a, a new teaching position? And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers, the other disciples. And why were they, in, they indignant? Because they wanted the position. <laughs> As a matter of fact, when you turn to the scene of the Last Supper, they're having this bitter argument there. The last night Jesus was on earth, arguing about who's going to be first because it had already begun way back then. And they were so indignant because, you know, hey, it's not fair for you to bring your mother into this, you know, and get into this picture. But Jesus called them to himself. You know, Jesus has a way of putting it into perspective and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you. I want you to underline that. It is not so among you. Remember this, that however they do it in the system, however they do it in the world, that's not so among you. It's not true in the church. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. That's just it, flat out, sane and simple. Whoever wishes to be great among and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Now we try to put the American system in the church. How come? Because it's part of the system. Now, let me say something. I honestly believe this. You know, uh, I, th I think even in the church we have this structure, right? You got the pastor up here. You draw the diagram, you know, and you got your preacher here, and you got your, you know, your associates along here. And every Christmas, the preacher gets the bigger jug of jelly. You know, I mean, he. After all, he's a. Uh, He's the number one man. Not so. 
When I met with these guys who serve on, uh, on the staff here, each one of them will tell you, will bear witness to my philosophy that I shared with them, that the pastor is just the leader among the equals. Each one of these men is a servant, is a, is a, is a minister called of God. Each one of these men has been chosen of God in a special and unique way and planted in the church. And I'm just the leader of them among the equals. I get the heat for all their mistakes. I'll have to admit that. But they're just like me. They're just like me, and I'm just like them. And when you bring your jugs of jelly, you know, for Christmas, be sure they get the same size jug of jelly, see, because I'm just one of them. And I want to say that publicly. And I want you to pray for them, and I want you to love them, and I want you to respect them just like you do your pastor. Because they're special people with a special call and a special place. Now, I'm going to talk about servanthood tonight, and it's going to be tough to listen to. Now, if you're kind of insignificant by nature, you're going to like what I'm, what I'm fixing to say. But if you're kind of a natural-born leader, kind of an upfront person, you're going to gag on what I'm going to say. And it's going to be tough. I want you to look at the marks of greatness. I'm at, verse, I'm at number two, Paul's model of humility. Chapter 18, Acts. Are you ready? Marks of greatness, chapter 18, Acts, verse 18. First, watch for these marks of greatness. First is a private integrity. There is a private integrity that is, that is characterized by a vow, a commitment to God. Now look at verse 18. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for, for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila, in Sincrea, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Now, if you're going to write the biography of a man, an important man, I, I don't imagine that they're right in the middle of that biography, you're going to say, and he went down to Imperial Barbers and got a haircut. You know, I don't think you're going to say that, because you know, that seems so insignificant. You know, he, he, he got his hair cut because he was keeping a vow. There's some significance to that. Watch this. In true servanthood, there is a private integrity marked by public vows. Now, what was this vow? The uh, commentators have just gone to war over what this vow was, and it's common, by common consent. It is a Nazarite vow. And when these men took these Nazarite vows, they made a commitment to God that they would not take strong drink and they wouldn't eat certain foods, <clears throat> and they wouldn't uh, touch dead bodies, and they would, as a commitment of that vow, they would not let a razor touch their heads. And they made this commitment, this Nazarite vow, but it wasn't for a lifetime in many cases. Um, after the vow, after a period of time, the vow might be released, and so because the vow was released, they went out and they got their hair cut because the vow is over. And the point is this, that here is this man, the Apostle Paul, who makes this private commitment to God, this, this secret and solemn commitment he makes to Christ. 
And you don't find anywhere about Paul making a Nazarite vow anywhere. And he didn't come out, you know, and make a public display, you know, that I'm going to give 10%, you know, make these vows that we make. He just quietly and privately, he made a commitment to God. It was a kind of behind-the-scenes vow, commitment. Now watch this. One of the marks of greatness is the detail of your life that is not known to God, that is not known, um, is known only to God. I want to say that again. Man, I I booted that completely out of the park. (laughs) One of the marks of greatness is the detail of your life that is known only to God. If all you have in your relationship to God is what is on public display, you're pretty superficial. The marks of greatness in a man are those commitments that he has made to God behind the scenes and that he privately and silently keeps. And here is all this public display and the trappings of our Christian life that we, you know, we put on display, you know, we, we, we dress up for the windows. If that's all there is to your Christianity, there's not much there. What is there about your Christian life that's known only to God? That's the question. Second mark of greatness is a refusal. Look at verses 19 through 21. And they came to Ephesus, that is Priscilla and Aquila and the apostle, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. Now when you, and, uh, when you can do it like the Apostle Paul or Freddie Gage, you know, you're in big demand. And so when he came to Ephesus, they said, Now, here's the man who's going to set this city on fire. Here's the man that's going to turn this town upside down. And, and we want him to stay while we've got him. I mean, he's, this fellow's got, you know, he's got his calendar booked up. And while we've got him in town, let's, let's put him to work, they said. And they said, Paul, we want you to stay here with us. We've got it all set up and we're ready to roll. And Apostle Paul did not consent. I like that word in the Greek. It means, it means simply the shaking of the head. I mean, he didn't answer. No, he shook his head. He said, hey, Paul, we got it all planned, and this is where you're going to stay and do your work. He said, hmm, just like that. There is a mark of maturity, and that is this, is the ability to say no without explaining. You know, most of us are so insecure that we have to explain why we say no, you know, and so nobody will get their feelings hurt or everybody will understand. Paul didn't even say a word. He shook his head. Because the Apostle Paul didn't view himself as exclusive. He knew that the work of Ephesus did not depend on him. It depended on the power of God. And there were other men and women who were so endowed. Um, Let me give you an illustration of, of 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 an exclusive spirit. Look at Mark chapter 9. Would you do that? Somehow it feels good tonight. It seems like you're with me. Well, there's a few of you nodding off, and then, but most of you are, are hanging in there. Verse 38, chapter 9. 
Digging some new ground, that's always fun. Verse 38 of Mark chapter 9. Verse 38, Mark 9 begins, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. Look at this next verse. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly, I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Point. You don't have to be among the twelve to minister to people. We, we don't have a corner on it, you see. And you don't have to be an ordained preacher to minister to people. We don't have a corner on it. And you don't have to be one of those upfront persons with all of this talent and ability and this charisma. We don't have a... Well, it sounds like I'm one of them. Y'all don't have a corner on it. God uses all kinds of people. And a real servant is a person who is a support person. The Apostle Paul did not view himself as indispensable. Third mark of greatness is a voluntary accountability. Look at verse 23 through um, 21 through 23. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God's, God wills. He set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he departed and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, there are no spotlights and there are no big crusades and no big meetings. It's just this man who decided that he would go back where he had been before and was going to be accountable to those people. He felt accountable and responsible to them. I mean, he wasn't one of these guys who just came in like a flash and then rode out and left. He was a person who had this sense of responsibility to other people, to finish what he started and to be accountable to those he is trying to minister unto. Do you have that kind of spirit and attitude? It would be the easiest thing in the world for you to get up on Sunday morning and do your little thing, teach your class, and feel real snug and secure about how much you're doing for the Lord. Do you have a voluntary accountability? Do you feel responsible? Let me tell you something. Watch this. Hear this, please. If God's work depends only on what you do and not what you are, God's work is in serious trouble. Number four, there is a mutual ministry. Look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Now, he comes back to Ephesus. Now, who is in Ephesus? Somebody answer. Who's in Ephesus? Who is there? Okay, give me, there are two. Who do you leave there? Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah. Okay, so he left Sam and Lee in Ephesus, the associates, and he, and he comes back to Ephesus 
and they're doing their they're doing a work there in the ministry. And here is the Apostle Paul, this 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 dynamic man, this this leader of men, this great theologian. Now, if he's not careful, he will overpower them, you see. I mean, he could go into town and just take their ministry completely away from them. That's not the way this man works. I hope I'm driving home a point tonight. I hope you catch the point that the greatness of this man was not in the great revivals he preached, the great souls that were won under his ministry. The greatness of this man was in the servant heart that he manifested. That's the greatness of this man. And so he came back to Ephesus, and what did he do? Verse 7 says, And there were about, in all, he began to work with these people. Notice that prior, in the verses preceding, he says, And there were in all about twelve men. Isn't that amazing? Here is this dynamic, charismatic theologian who is literally taking the nation by storm and the other nations, and he comes back to Ephesus where there is already a ministry going on by two faithful people called of God. And he he doesn't come in to overpower them. He just takes 12 men and begins to minister to them. And I'm so impressed with him because I see the marks of a servant. Now, in Christianity Today, not too long ago, there was this satire on what it might be like if the disciples were, you know, in the modern day. I mean, like disciples were 1983. And and here they are in this meeting. Jesus is with them. I want you to get this. This is so true. And they're around this big table, and there's a coffee pot, and it's brewing, you know, and steaming. And and, and all of them, you know, they've got beards, and they're right up to date, and they're sitting around this. And Pete is speaking. That's Peter. Pete is speaking. He says, this meeting has been called at the request of Matt, John, Tom, and little Jim. Bart, that's Bartholomew, did you get that? Bart, would you, would you lead in prayer? Bart, Almighty God, we ask your blessing upon all we do and say, and we pray that you will see our side as your side. Amen. <laughs> Pete, Jesus, we've been following you around for some time, and we're getting concerned about the attendance figures. Tom, how many were out there on the mountain yesterday? Uh, 37. Pete, well, this is getting to be ridiculous. We're going to have to pep things up, guys. We expect things to happen. John, I want to suggest that you pull off some more miracles. (laughs) That walking on the water bit was one of the most exciting things I've ever seen. (laughs) But only a few of us saw it. Now, now, if a thousand or so could have had a chance to witness it, we could have had more out there on that hill than we could have handled. Little Jim, I agree. Those healing miracles are terrific. But only a limited number really get to see what has happened. Let's, add, let's, let's turn some more water to wine. More fish and chips. <laughs> Still more storms and give more signs. That's what the people need, Lord. Pete, right on. <laughs> Another thing, publicity is essential, and you tell half the people you cure to keep it quiet. I mean, let the word get around. Now, I'm all for miracles, but I want to hear a few stories. I can understand. This business, those who have ears to hear, let them hear, just clogs the issue. 
Man, you're going to have to make it clear so most of us will have something to take home. Big John, I'd like to offer an order of service. Now, does that sound typical or does it not? I'd like to offer an order of service. First a story, then a big miracle, followed by an offering. (laughs) Then maybe a song, a poem or something followed by maybe a small miracle. You know, something to bring them back next time. Oh yeah, you can have a prayer if you'd like to. Tom, we have to do something, little Jim. That's for sure. Attendance has been awful. Judas. Judas. I'd like to say that if we're going to continue to meet in this upper room, we ought to do something about this carpet. Now, does that sound typical or not? Lord, help me to be a nobody so that I can tell anybody about somebody who can save everybody. Now, the application. Number one. Number one. Resist the... Resist the temptation to adopt the world's view of greatness. Resist that. If things are working, praise the Lord for it. If things are not, then He's trying to tell us something. Lord, help me to resist the temptation to adopt the world's view of greatness. Let me fail. You see, I'm free to fail. I wasn't free to fail a few years ago. Just keep on letting me be real. Can you pray that prayer? Number two. We must keep the whole body in focus. That is, the whole body that is the church, not just a small part of it. For God never intended for the church to have superstars. I thought sure I'd get an amen. The church, Christ never intended for the church to have superstars. Well, one out of two will hurt. Number three. Let's start emphasizing the significance of being a servant. Let's start getting excited over little things. Let's start emphasizing servanthood. I mean, where people come up to you and say, Hey... Can I keep the nursery? (laughs) You need somebody in a nursery? Man, I'd like to do that some Sunday. I mean, where a person comes up and says, I see you have a little problem with ushers. Can I help anyway? Is there a way I can help? I mean, where people come up and say, you know, I'm seeing you having to do all this cooking back here, you know. Can I cook something for the BSU? And the BSU says, can I cook something for the, for the pastor and, and a <laughs> uh, church? I mean, let's start emphasizing the little things. You want to? Let's do it. Dawson Trotman was the founder of the Navigators. 
You know the story of Dawson Trotman's life and his death. He was out in a boat in a, with, with a group of people one day, and the boat made a quick turn, and Dawson Trotman and two girls fell overboard, and neither could swim well. And they were floundering around in the water as the boat came back to get them. And Dawson was kind of dog paddling, and he, uh, he got one, he lifted her up, and she got on the boat, and the other was fighting and thrashing, and he went down and got her and lifted her up and put her on the boat, and he went under and was lost. They got the, the girls and the, and the people in the boat, they went back to shore, his wife was on shore, and they got out of the boat and they said, Dawson is lost. And she said, our God is in heaven and Dawson is not lost. And the next day, they ran the headlines of the local newspaper. Dawson Trotman was famous, important man. And they said, will you get this? Dawson Trotman, a man who is always holding others up. That's what a servant is. He's a person who's always holding others up. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the thrilling word that just breathes on these pages and the great witness of those who've gone before us. And sometimes, Father, I just get to thinking about these men whose bodies have, have perished in the grave to the dust. And yet they live on in so many ways as well as in heaven. And their example beckons us to greatness. And I pray that indeed we shall be great men, great women. In Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations. Before I give those invitations, this. Some people took Abraham Lincoln to church when they got home, they said, how did you like our pastor? He said, oh, he was a fine man, tall and had a great voice. And they said, well, that's not what we meant. How did you like his sermon? And he said, I didn't like it. And they said, why didn't you like it? He said, because he didn't ask us to do anything great. I want to ask you to do something great tonight. I want to ask you, to become a servant. Now the invitations are these. The first is to come and give your life to Jesus Christ if you've never accepted Him as your personal Savior, if you've never made that commitment to Jesus. I'm not asking you to do anything except give your heart and life to Christ. To receive Him by invitation. The only way He comes in is by invitation. Have you ever asked Him into your life second invitation is for you to come and, and join this family of servants to minister. That's our commitment, to minister. And the third invitation is just for you to come and say, you know, I want to be a servant. I've, I want to give my life in ministry to, to, to the work of God in the world. Here I am. I make this commitment. Now, those are the invitations. I just have a good idea, a feeling that you're going to come. It's easier to do it. When you come on the first word, let's stand and sing.